Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? From the Old Testament, we are reading from Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Jeremiah the prophet writes, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. O my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river. It will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will be, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his doings. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. In the New Testament, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. Paul writes, For though I am free from all men... I have made myself a servant to all that I might with win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law. Not being without law toward God but under law towards Christ that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might be all means, by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. 
And everyone who competes for this prize is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who bears, who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the doctrine of perspicuity. We thank you for the clearness of your word. And I pray, God, that our study now in the book of James would be for your glory. Lord, help us to understand your will. Let us live according to it. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to turn with me as we have been studying the book of James to James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. We have been examining what James has to say concerning biblical faith and what that faith leads us to do in Christ. This morning I'd like to begin reading for you from the Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 24, entitled Man's Sanctification and Good Works. It says, We believe that this true faith being wrought in man by the hearing of the Word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit sanctifies him and makes him a new man, causing him to live a new life and freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life that on the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man, for we do not speak of a vain faith, but of such a faith which is called in Scripture a faith working through love, which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in His Word. The issue for both James and his epistle, as well as the article that we just read from the Belgic Confession, is a desire to do good, those good works that honor God and the ability to, to do those works stems from the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit. It isn't something that 
we do for ourselves because apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Christ makes us alive so that we no longer do the things of this world, but those things that honor God and bring glory unto His name. Regeneration is defined by Burkhoff as the act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. What that means, beloved, is that God the Holy Spirit works in the elect person's heart to awaken them to their need to be saved and then puts in them a desire to honor and glorify God through the way that we live our lives. And apart from that regenerating work of the Spirit, we are and will remain dead in our trespasses and sins. Faith in Christ, a result of that regenerating work, a grace given to sinners where the elect person is enabled to believe in and live for Jesus Christ. And what James argues throughout this letter to the persecuted, hurting Christian is that our faith will lead us to live as we should regardless of the various sufferings we might be called by God to endure. The thing about these works in which James describes to us is that they aren't meritous, meaning we don't do these things so that we can build up good credit with God or earn salvation with God or make ourselves acceptable to God. The works we do we do in light of the salvation that He has given us and the regenerative work of God the Holy Spirit. You'll notice as we go through this passage, verses 12 to 18, that James uses the word translated temptation or tempted or tempt Six times. The word comes from the Greek word perosmos. Perosmos. It literally means to in, to be enticed to evil. This word that's used six times is not a description of a type of enticement. In other words, James is writing in regards to a general temptation that you and I might face. Whatever temptation awaits for us outside of this room, out in the world in which we live, James is describing for us, generally speaking, the need that we have because of our faith in Christ to fight the temptations that as the author of Hebrews writes, entangles us. The idea is that you might be tempted into being angry or to seek revenge or to 
struggle with lust, to spend money that you don't have, to covet other people's possessions. We're going to struggle from time to time, but what James is telling us is that whatever the temptation may be, because we have been called out of this darkness and the Spirit of God is working in us, has regenerated us, saved us, called us, elected us, we have been given the power that we need and even the conviction in our hearts that we need to fight whatever temptation comes our way. So our goal for this morning is to see that through God's regenerating work, we can stand by faith in the midst of any temptation we might have. Will you follow along with me as I read verses 12 to 18? James writes, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when a desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Begin this morning by looking at verse 12 with faith leading us to assurance. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when we have been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. At a glossary look, of the text, it would seem that the blessed are those who endure temptation because that person will receive the crown of life which God has promised, which is something we may initially see as something we do by ourselves. But that's not what James means here. Blessed, makarios, a word that you see in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. It doesn't mean happy or carefree. And it's not a happiness through various types of trials and conflicts or troubles that we get through due to the effort of our of ourselves through these various trials, but rather it refers to an inner joy, a confidence that the believer gains as we see God causing us to both persevere as well as being preserved. The issue here that our being preserved in our persevering, our sanctification, our 
growing in both faith and obedience is the result and evidence of God's regenerating work in us. Therefore, we're blessed. So talking about walking in the newness of Christ is far different than is our walking according to our newness of life in Christ Jesus. The fifth head of doctrine, the canon of Dort, the Perseverance of the Saints, Article 4, says, Although the weakness of the flesh cannot prevail against the power of God who confirms and preserves true believers in a state of grace, yet converts converts are not always so influenced and actuated by the Spirit of God as not in some particular instances sinfully to deviate from the guidance of divine grace so as to be seduced and to comply with the lust of the flesh. They must therefore be constant in watching and prayer. The point here that we see in James, the fifth head of doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, is that we are simultaneously both given the power to obey God and caused by God to obey. And as we grow, we become more confident of the fact that He is working in us, and yet we are given the task of watching over the condition of our hearts and observing all the various ways in which we might be tempted. Notice at the end, those who have preserved he says, will receive the crown of life. Did you know that the crown of life here is an idea that James borrows from athletic competition in his day? The athletes compete and the winner is received a crown or a, a you know a wreath. You see this idea written by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 and 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4. And the point is not that there is some kind of superior award for someone who does better than anyone else. It is the idea that all those who confess Jesus Christ and as Lord and Savior, who have been called out of the darkness and into this glorious light, will receive a crown because of Christ Jesus' work on our behalf. See, what James wants us to understand is that our persevering, our being preserved happens as a direct result of our being transformed by the work of the Spirit and not of our own, and therefore it testifies to our being in Christ. And our being in Christ awards us benefits that we receive because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. James isn't giving us over to a sense of arrogance that I have been called out of the darkness and into the glorious light because of his electing purposes, but what should happen because of what he's done is a deep sense of humility 
And as we grow because of what Christ has done, we ought to see that He is in fact working in us for His glory. And that work assures us of our walking in Him. Secondly, verses 13 to 17, James writes that faith leads leads us to an understanding of our own hearts. Will you follow along with me as I read? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James here in verse 13 talks with us rather frankly about the reality of temptation. And he warns us that as we're tempted by various temptations and struggle with various struggles, not to blame our temptation upon God. James points, James point here goes back to the very beginning of the sin of Adam and Eve, Adam being our federal head in Genesis 3. We see that Adam, as the federal head, hearing the words of our father who gives him the the covenant, and he gives him the, the covenant promise, if you refuse to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will have eternal life. You will live in the splendor of the garden for all of eternity. But he instead, listening to the lies of the serpent to Eve, eats with Eve the apple from the knowledge of, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what happens is remarkable. Without even thinking about it, what we see as God approaches them, Adam automatically blames Eve as to why he ate the fruit. Eve blames the serpent. Blaming people for our succumbing to temptation is a temptation in and of itself. This goes wrong. It's their fault. That goes wrong. It's so-and-so's fault. Because assigning fault means getting out of blame for anything. Most of the time, it's anyone's fault but my own. And few people will take ownership for their contribution to the problem. And I'll tell you why. Because of pride. James warns us not to allow pride to fester into our hearts and to introduce the notion or belief that God is to blame. He tells us why God isn't to to be blamed. Because God cannot be tempted by evil 
and he can't therefore tempt anyone. Cannot. The Greek word meaning that there is no capacity for God to desire what is evil or to be tempted by it. God cannot be affected or tempted by evil. What that refers to theologically is His immutability. That is, God cannot change. His character will never change because it can't be approved, improved upon or changed in any way. Therefore, God cannot tempt you. Notice verse 14, James tells us where our temptation comes from. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Notice the words drawn away and enticed. Drawn, the Greek word elko, to be dragged away, compelled by inner device. You may not know it, but it's a a hunting term. You lure an animal with something that the animal desires, and when it comes forth to get whatever it is being lured by, the hunter then shoots it, and Lord willing, kills it. Enticed from delazo, a fishing term, to put a, a worm on the hook and to lower the, the hook into the water so that the fish is tempted by the worm and then it goes and it puts its mouth around the worm not knowing that there's a hook and then suddenly the fisherman pulls the fish and subsequently, or the, I'm sorry, the, the hook and then subsequently the fish. God cannot be directly or indirectly tempted. He cannot be tempted, but we are so easily carried away by our own desires from within our own hearts. James' point here very simply is that the reality of our temptation cannot be blamed on God but should be entirely put upon our own shoulders. Verse 15, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, James is not trying to describe a particular temptation to us. But the idea is one of idolatry. When we take God from the throne of our hearts and we put Him off to the side because we yearn for something other than Him, it says that that continuously happening, not being repented of, leads to death. But, verses 16 and 17, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's an interesting thing. When we look at our life of temptations and struggles, 
that a temptation in and of itself is to see these things that God might allow or does allow in our life, not as blessings or areas in which we get to grow and learn to depend upon Him all the more, but they're seen as burdens. See, it says, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with Him, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The idea is that God doesn't change. When God gives us something that is designed to bless us, to mature us, to grow us in our sanctification, it is without a shadow of a doubt for our good. The question that we have to wrestle with is when I'm looking at something that I desire to have, something that may not be in and of itself wrong for me to have, but is nevertheless a sin because God didn't want me to have it, or it is a replacing of God in the throne room of my heart. The only question is, will I repent when I understand that what I'm looking at is something I'm tempted by and run back to the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. God doesn't change. Every good gift that comes, comes from above and is to bless us. It's to encourage us. Do we see it that way? Do we welcome in any way, shape, or form? Is it even on our radar that when something comes, my automatic response isn't to be, to, 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 to speak negatively or, or, you know, to hate or resist whatever it is, but to embrace it because God is using it as an instrument of sanctification in my life. Finally, verse 18. As God gives us His mercy to persevere and be preserved, our faith leads us to understanding that we grow for His glory. Follow along with me. He says, verse 18, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Verse 12, we talked about how we're going to persevere and be preserved by God's grace through faith, which is one of the signs that God uses in our life that He is sanctifying us. Verses 13 to 17, we have to understand within His grace that we will, we could be so easily led astray by those temptations and yet temptations and the things that He allows, He gives to us for our sanctification. But now finally, verse 18, we look at why he does what he does for us. He says, verse 18, he brought us forth. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Notice the phrase, of his own will, is written in a verb tense called aorist participle. It means that God is deliberate and specific in his exercising of choosing those whom he chooses to be saved. He's 
deliberate and specific about it. But he says, of his own will that he brought us forth, he says, by the word of truth. So what that means is that the word of God is made effective in the heart of the sinner by God the Holy Spirit. The sinner hears the word, the Spirit makes the word effective in the heart, and we believe upon it. We grow because of it. Notice he says why he does this. Again, verse 18, that we might be a kind of first fruits. Have any of you heard of that expression throughout Scripture, the first fruits? I'm sure many of us have. You read about it in Leviticus chapter 23 and Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy chapter 18, where literally the best crops that were produced are brought before, are harvested and brought before the Lord. The idea here that James writes using farm terminology is that as Christ calls us out, or rather God calls us out of the darkness and Christ purchases our salvation and the Spirit works in us to believe. And as he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, that we are literally brought forth before Him. See, the idea here is that we're not simply being transformed so that we can be better versions of ourselves. He's not doing it so that He can build up our self-esteem. He's doing it for the praise of His name. Solely for the praise of His name. And He calls out a group of people who did not deserve His unmitigated love transforms them by His grace so that they might live lives by faith for His glory. That we might be a first fruit. Let me read for you a poem that I found. I don't know who wrote it, and I found it five or six years ago, but I've kept it and I have loved it. And I hope it's encouraging to your heart. It says, There is a place of sweet repose from every tide of stormy woes, a calm, steadfast retreat, a shelter from the wind that blows, and where it is the Christian knows, tis at the mercy seat. A place where joys of life abound, where we may hear the soothing sound of Jesus' voice so sweet. We know because of grace redound, a closer walk with God is found while at the mercy seat. Because of prayer, when day is done, or at the early rise of sun, we suffer no defeat Whenever we pray through with the sun, how many are the victories won around the mercy seat? The question is this. Because the whole idea of what James is trying to convey to us under 
the guidance and inspiration of God the Holy Spirit is that we are a particularly blessed people. When temptation comes, various trials come, when we're tempted to want to complain, when we look at what somebody else has and we covet that thing, when we struggle with sexual immorality, if we struggle with sexual immorality, we struggle with with coveting and money, we look at people's vehicles and we 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 think that if only we could have that, we might be happy. The whole point is that we don't have to live under the bondage of what the world has to live under because we have been saved by grace. The temptation of bitterness, of anger, of resentment has been removed from our hearts should only we believe and cry out to Him and trust that He has given us what we need to live according to what He has called us to do. Do we fight the temptation? Or have we laid down, or have we learned, excuse me, to lay down and let it overwhelm us? James isn't, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? He's not, uh, undermining the struggle. Amen? He's not saying, get over it, you know. My parents used to say when I was a kid, I had a problem to say, well, build a bridge and then get over it. That's not what he's saying, beloved. It's interesting because if we were to go around the room and we were to discuss all the things that we saw God allow in our life, you know, after the fact, and we look back and we we then discussed how God caused us to persevere, uh, that He allowed, that, that He preserved us through the midst of it, we would hear a remarkable thing over and over again that we might have been at our wits end, and yet His love and His mercy carried us through. But the, the idea in, in understanding that intellectually, identifying it, looking back at how it has been done over and over again is to look forward, not knowing what's coming, but knowing that he will again cause you to persevere and to be preserved. You understand? He's not, chop up, be a man. Even to the ladies, go be a man. He's not saying that. He's saying, weep. Feel the full blunt of sadness and discouragement, but don't stay there. Don't allow temptation to overtake your heart so that when you look at your life, what you see is despair and discouragement when the Lord, the God of of heaven and earth called you to go there. And He's with you as you go. He didn't abandon you. He didn't leave you. He didn't allow the struggle to overtake you like a wave in the ocean. 
He's there with you. Amen? Uh, I don't need to remind you of that. The word of the Lord says that God will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can, we can put our little flag on that promise and hold to it like a monkey to a cupcake. That's right. The theological language of monkey to a cupcake. Understand what we're talking about here, beloved. Again and again and again, James is going to point us to the unmitigated truth that the reason we can maintain this walk of faith is because of what he has done within us. That we derive strength from God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the encouragement that it is to us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would gird us up with strength and hope. God, that wherever we go and whatever you allow, you do for your glory and for our good, that we might become more like Christ. Lord, if need be, I pray that if this weighs heavy upon our hearts, if need be, we'd go to wherever we need to so that we can cry out to you or rejoice in you because of what you've done. God, we thank you and we praise you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.